Okay, so reading from Psalm 34. This is a Psalm of David. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off from the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, where we will be continuing our sermon series in 1 Peter. And we're reading from verse 8 to verse 22. 1 Peter, toward the end of the Bible. 1 Peter, chapter 3, and beginning from verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessed. To this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard, regard Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word to us today. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word to us. We thank you that it comforts us, that it challenges us, that it changes us. We pray this morning that as we uh, look upon your word, as we meditate on it, and as we reflect on our lives, you might be working by your spirit to bring the gospel to bear in our hearts and in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there times that you wished that no one knew you were a Christian? You know those moments, uh, those social situations where you're glad that your faith is not being broadcast out into the world? Uh, Back in my student days, I was part of the Sydney University Evangelical Union, the SUEU, or the EU for short. Um, and we, uh, this, this was a group that was equivalent to, uh, I don't know, ES at UQ or QUT Christians at QUT. Uh, and our Christian group had these really loud and obnoxious T-shirts uh, that had printed on the back of them, Jesus is Lord. And I always felt super self-conscious whenever I wore that T-shirt to uni. Whenever I was catching the train, walking to class, sitting in lectures and in shoots, everyone could tell that I was a Christian. Now, I remember back, um, you might recall, back in uh, 2017, uh, Australia held a postal vote. Uh, The postal vote was, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry, yes or no? And around that time, I was actually, I'd finished being a student, and I'd come back uh, to Sydney, you need to be a staff worker with the Christian group. And I remember one lunchtime, I was sitting on a bench on the main uh, sort of walkway in uh, the university, and I noticed a group of about 15 people from, uh, people from both the Catholic Society and also the Orthodox Christian Society. Uh, they were giving out free kebabs because, you know, they're Orthodox. Uh, and um, they were giving out free kebabs, but uh, doing so to kind of promote, uh, uh, talk about this sort of um, postal vote, uh, and they were holding up signs saying, it's okay to vote no. 
Now, apparently, news of this uh, free kebab sort of sign-holding uh, thing uh, spread very fast because very soon after, a counter-rally developed. Um, there were Christians uh, that were there, but they were quickly outnumbered by hundreds of people uh, who were very pro-marriage equality. It got very loud. Uh, it got very heated. Um, the counter-protesters even brought a megaphone and began screaming into the faces of the Christians. There was lots of verbal abuse. Uh, there was chanting. There was even some physical altercations. Uh, the police arrived, uh, and they uh, slowly broke up uh, the demonstration. And I remember sitting there on that bench, watching all of that unfold, and being very, very glad that I wasn't wearing my Jesus is Lord t-shirt that day. But, you know, maybe uh, you're more courageous than me. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, when you think about uh, seeing a Christian being treated unfairly, uh, you think about how might you respond. Or think about if that Christian was you. How would you respond? Uh, what if you were being treated unfairly as a Christian? No, you might just brush it off. It's fine. Plenty of people have it worse than me. But what if it was more than just unfair treatment? What if someone started abusing you, taking advantage of you? What if they said some false and slanderous things against you, accused you of wrongdoing? It's still fine, you might say. It's just my reputation. People will see who I really am through my actions. But what if it goes a step further? What if you lost your job? because you were a Christian? What if you were kicked out of home because you were practicing your faith? At that point, maybe you'd like to stick up for yourself, you know, to fight for your rights. Or maybe, like me, you just wish that you had left your Jesus' Lord t-shirt at home. As we continue hearing from uh, 1 Peter this morning, you may recall that Peter is writing to those uh, Christians who are being treated unfairly, and they've been treated like that. They're facing discrimination and persecution purely because they are Christians. And how does Peter instruct them to respond? Does he tell them to keep their T-shirts at home and to hide their faith? Does he tell them to stick up for their rights, to stick up for themselves, to fight for their rights? Well, he tells them neither. In our passage this morning, Peter tells those facing Christian discrimination to just let it happen, to bear with it. And on top of that, he tells Christians not to fight back, but instead to even bless those who persecute them, those who harm them. Now, why would Peter say this? Seems a bit strange, right? And what might that mean for us? Well, we're going to find out. So uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. And you'll have a sermon outlined there with you as uh, you came in on your way in. And I want to apologize. There's a bit of a typo. We're not going to do point two twice. Uh, we're actually going to uh, you know, do a different point at point three. Uh, the, if you want to correct that point, it should be number three, even amidst suffering. And then the verses references are chapter three, verses um, 13 to 17. Uh, and so if you look at your eyeline, and if it were corrected, you'll see that we're going to be tackling uh, this, passage, this passage in sort of three parts and then thinking about what it means for us. So firstly, we're going to be seeing uh, what the good life is uh, that Peter is urging Christians to live. 
Then secondly, we're going to see what this life looks like in, ter- in the times of discrimination and persecution. Uh, then we're going to see how the gospel of Jesus enables and empowers us to live in this way. And then finally, briefly, we're going to be considering some of the unique challenges that we face as Christians today. So firstly, uh, uh, point two, pursue the Pursue the good life. In verses 8 to 12, Peter urges Christians to pursue the good life. Uh, these uh, verses act as a sort of a pivot uh, between what we've been looking at uh, in the last two weeks, the previous two weeks, and what we'll be looking at over the next few sermons as we delve deeper into this idea of suffering. Now, recall what Peter says in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. If you have it in your Bibles, it's just a page over. He reminds us that Christians as exiles, are to keep their conduct honorable as they live amongst unbelievers. They are to pursue, in other words, the good life, so that even as unbelievers speak against Christians, they would nevertheless still see that the Christians are pursuing good. And as we've explored over the last two weeks, Peter has built on this principle by articulating what it means for Christians to be subject to different spheres of power and authority. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, what it looks like to be uh, subject to governments, uh, to masters. Last week, for Christian wives with their husbands. And so what we've seen, what Peter has kind of drawn out so far, is that good conduct involves subjecting uh, yourselves to human authorities, but doing so knowing that God ultimately has power over all authorities. And so now Peter continues that principle, and he now gives a final word on how Christians are to relate to people, uh, relate to power and to authority. Now, as we uh, look into this passage, it's not immediately clear who or what that power and authority is. But we can see that this time, he doesn't talk about submission. He speaks instead about how we are to relate to others. And so let me read from verse 8. I'm going to be reading verses 8 to 9. You have to see that on the screen as well. So from verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you accord that you may obtain a blessing. In Peter's final word on relating to power and authority, Peter addresses all of the Christians, and he speaks into their character. And notice the qualities that he lists out. Uh, Unity of mind, uh, which literally uh, meant harmony. Sympathy, love, a tender heart, or literally compassion, and humility. These are all characteristics which begin within us, but then go on to impact the way that we relate to others. Do you see that? These relational qualities are directed towards nurturing, loving relationships between yourself and others. And Peter expects all Christians to be this way. Now, it can be easy to see what this might look like within the community of God's people. Uh, I've had the privilege to see this all already uh, in my short time here at SLA Church. You know, whenever people ask uh, Maggie or I, you know, how's it been uh, being at SLA Church? 
uh, our common response is always, everyone here is so loving and welcome. And we're not just being nice when we say that. It's actually true. Uh, People have uh, checked up on how we're going, offered to pray for us, invited us over for dinner. And I know it's not just happening because we're the new pastors uh, in the church. Uh, I've seen examples of harmony, of sympathy, of love, compassion, and humility on display in our church every single week amongst uh, God's people here. These qualities are very easy to have when we're amongst Christians. But I don't think Peter is only thinking about relationships between uh, Christians. You see, he goes on in verse 9 to elaborate on what these qualities might look like when relating with those who might seek to harm us. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, if someone harms you, don't harm them back. If someone insults you, don't insult them back. Now, back in the time of Peter's letter, it was typical for people to retaliate against any sort of harm or insult against them in order that they might defend their honor. And that idea of defending your honor is uh, its still a true thing for us today, isn't it? No one likes being humiliated. No one likes having their integrity questioned. Uh, in the K-drama I've been watching, one of the main characters is forced to get on his knees and beg for forgiveness. Uh, in Korea, apparently, this is a really shameful and humiliating thing for you to do, especially if you're forced to do it for no reason. And uh, when his brothers heard about this, they could not contain their rage at the injustice. They wanted to retaliate so badly. And I wanted them to retaliate so badly. But Peter is saying that the loving, compassionate, and humble response is to not retaliate, to not defend your honor. Rather, the Christian response to evil is to bless. Repay evil with blessing. Repay reviling with blessing. And Peter reinforces this countercultural response with the words of Psalm 34, a psalm that sings of the Lord's deliverance uh, of the righteous from their enemies. The righteous are those who desire to love life and uh, to see good days. Uh, In other words, they desire to inherit eternal life. And this comes, uh, the psalm uh, demonstrates, in the form of the Lord's deliverance. Uh, Eternal life comes because the Lord delivers the righteous. And so the part which Peter quotes reminds us that the Lord will favor the righteous, but he will turn his face against those who do evil. This means that there is no need for the righteous to retaliate because they trust in the Lord's deliverance. You see, they are freed to turn away from evil and to pursue good. And Peter applies this idea to all of the Christians here. The appropriate response to evil is not retaliation, but blessing. Now, what does Peter mean when he says blessing? To answer that, uh, let's take a look at the reason Christians are to bless. Uh, If you look there in verse 9, Christians are to bless because, uh, sorry, Christians have been called to the task of blessing 
so that they might obtain a blessing. Now, at first glance, uh, this seems like Peter is telling Christians to give blessings to others in order to receive blessings from God. But if we read carefully, this interpretation can't be true because Peter has made it, clear, uh, made it very clear throughout his letter that we inherit blessing not because of anything that we've done, but because God has shown us great mercy to us through Jesus. Inheriting blessing is not a transaction that requires us to pay or do anything. It is something that we are called to in the mercy of God. Part of the calling that we've been given is that we are to bless others. And we are to do so precisely because we have been already accorded to inherit blessing. You see, if we desire to inherit blessing, then we are to live out the call to bless others. And so I think blessing in this instance, the way Peter is using it, simply means uh, to be seeking for others to receive the same blessing that we have already been mercifully called to. Blessing means seeking for others to receive the same blessing that we have already been mercifully called to ourselves. We have been blessed with the promise of eternal life. Why wouldn't we desire others to receive this blessing, even those who seek to harm us? To seek the blessing of your enemies, that is the very definition of loving your neighbor, isn't it? Essentially, this is what Peter's final word has boiled down to. Pursuing the good life doesn't mean just loving yourself. It doesn't mean just loving those uh, who love you back, uh, for example, people in the church. It's also loving your neighbor, even when your neighbor is your enemy. Uh, in these uh, first few verses, Peter has given us the blueprint and the motivation for pursuing the good life, to seek blessing for others. But he's not naive about the reality Christians face as exiles in this world. He recognizes how difficult it is to pursue the good life when people are out to get you. And so in this next section, uh, he clarifies who the powers and authorities are. Have a look in your Bibles with me from verse 13 and take note of how these people are described. Verse 13 now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Who are the powers and authorities that Peter is referring to? It's those who harm, those who cause suffering, those who intimidate, those who slander and revile Christians for their good behavior in Christ. Peter tells Christians to persevere in pursuing good, 
even while these powers and authorities are out to get us. And he tells us why in these very same verses. Looking at verse 13, he asks rhetorically, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, of course, Peter isn't saying that if you do good, then no one will harm you, no one will discriminate against you or slander you or persecute you or treat you unfairly. Peter's not saying that. Uh, Peter himself knows what it means to suffer for pursuing the good life. He himself has been persecuted. He's been imprisoned. He's been publicly disgraced. No, what Peter has in mind when he asks that rhetorical question uh, is something more long-term than the present suffering of Christians. You see, in verse 14, he says that even if you should suffer now for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Ultimately, no one can harm you, Peter says, because as one who has been called to pursue a good life, you will be blessed with an eternal inheritance. And no power or authority can take that away from you. Uh, it's a bit like losing game three of the state of origin, uh, even though you've already won game one or two. Or losing the Manchester derby, but mathematically you've already won the league. It still hurts to lose against your bitter rivals, but nothing can change the fact that you've already won the competition. And that's what it's like for us. Peter reminds us that we are able to pursue the good life even amidst suffering, even when it hurts, because we have nothing to fear. Those who discriminate against Christians, ultimately they have no bite because our inheritance is secure. But what about the injustice, I hear you scream? Who is going to put those who mistreat and abuse Christians in their right place? Well, Peter's excerpt from Psalm 34 just previously has already foreshadowed this. The Lord will turn his face against those who do evil. But, he exp uh, but Peter expands further in verse 16 to say that ultimately they will be put to shame. Which means it is not our place to judge. It's our place to bless. And in fact, it is through our blessing that ultimately, Peter says, that they will be put to shame. And verses 15 to 16 tease this point out. You see, instead of defending ourselves or seeking retribution, Peter calls us, uh, see there, to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts. And we do this by being prepared to defend our hope to anyone who asks. Now, notice that Peter doesn't say much about what we might say in the defense of our hope, but what matters is how we defend our hope. And Peter says that we are to defend our hope with gentleness, with respect, with a good conscience. Now, of course, you're, you're still going to need to articulate uh, the reason for your hope. You can't just gently say nothing. Um, but the manner is more important than how persuasive your argument is. And I think the point here is that we defend our hope in such a way, with such a manner that reflects that very hope. Now, I think Peter's been quite deliberate with choosing the word hope over the word faith. 
Uh, we talk about defending the faith. But Peter says we are to defend our hope. And I think it's because hope directs us towards something that is in the future. Hope is linked to our inheritance. Which means that we can defend this hope without being offensive, without being retaliatory, without trying to defeat the person who is uh, asking us about this hope. Because we know that this inheritance is secure. Because we know that no one outside of God can take this inheritance away. Our defense can be gentle, yet confident. Respectful, yet firm. Because we know that the hope that we defend is certain. See, when it comes to facing suffering and injustice, our job is to continue to pursue the good life to seek to bless others by defending our hope. And if we do this, if we do this in this way, then those who seek to slander us will be shamed once this hope is realized. And perhaps some may even have their stubborn hearts softened towards the gospel because they recognize in you the hope that they have been desperately longing for. And so if you're a Christian, uh, if you're a Christian here, and Peter is saying to you to be prepared to defend your hope. Not necessarily being prepared to answer tricky questions, though there is a place to kind of unpack those tricky questions to help people understand. But being prepared means being able to articulate why you're able to live the good life, even if it means facing discrimination and persecution. It means ensuring that your attitude and your lifestyle reflects uh, this hope as well. And so for some of you, this might mean that you might need to be more bold and more open about your faith, about your hope. It might mean putting yourself in situations where people will ask you for the reason for your hope so that you can have the opportunity to defend that hope with gentleness and respect. But for others, this means uh, chilling out a little bit. You know, remember, in defending our hope, we're not seeking to win the argument. We're seeking to win the person to Christ. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, then can I ask you to take the time to listen to and to observe the lives of your Christian friends? Yes, I know, they're not perfect. But hopefully you can see that there's something different about them that even if you sarcastically make fun of their Christianness, that you see that they continue to press on in pursuit of the good life, even as you make fun of them. Now, Peter rounds out this section, uh, uh, this middle section, by affirming in verse 17 that suffering for doing good is better than suffering for doing evil. He even goes so far as to say that suffering for good is part of God's will. Uh, that fact uh, for us ought to be a comfort. It ought to be a comfort for us because it reminds us that God is the one who is in control. You know, while it might be other powers and authorities that are directly causing our suffering, ultimately God is the one who permits it. And he does so according to his good and right intentions. So far, Peter has shown us what the good life is, 
and what it looks like to pursue this amidst suffering, amidst persecution, amidst discrimination. And along the way, he's given us glimpses as to how it is that we can persevere. Uh, Now, in our final section, in these final verses, Peter kind of pulls back the curtain and demonstrates clearly how it is that the gospel actually enables us and empowers us to live in this way. And he does this by pointing us to the suffering of Christ. Now, I'm going to say up front that verses 18 to 22 are incredibly tricky to understand. Even the great reformer Martin Luther, who helped us figure out justification by faith, in his commentary on 1 Peter basically said, yeah, I got no idea. (laughs) But I'll try and do my best to articulate what I think it means. I'm not saying I'm better than Luther. I'm just... I have centuries of benefit of Christian thinking and commentary on this uh, passage. And so, as I've mentioned before, the main point of these verses is that they provide the gospel foundation for why we can and why we should pursue good amidst suffering. Peter began our passage by speaking about what we should do, and now he's demonstrating how the gospel of Jesus enables us to do what we should do. Now, these verses uh, take us on a theological journey from Christ's suffering in verse 18 to Christ's victory in verses 19 to 20 and Christ's salvation and rule in verses 21 and 22. And there's so much goodness to reflect on in these verses, but unfortunately, I'm only able to make a brief comment on each one. And I'm going to make a comment uh, kind of unpacking each of these things and helping us to see how these things enable and empower us to persevere in suffering. So, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If we were ever to be in any doubt that it is better to suffer for doing good, then Peter reminds us that Christ also suffered. And if we think that the suffering that we experience as Christians is bad, well, Jesus experiences the worst of it, doesn't he? He's beaten, he's insulted, he's unfairly tried, he's humiliated, he's executed. And he's executed even though everyone could clearly see that he had done no wrong. And he experienced all of that He suffered all of that for us in our place. He suffered for sins. He suffered for our sins. The sins that would have rightly condemned us to death, Jesus took them upon himself and he suffered death for us. Jesus, the only truly righteous one, suffered for us. Us, the holy unrighteous ones. And he did this, you see in, the, in these verses, he did this to bring us to God. Our sins which rightly separate us from God, they have been paid for in the suffering of Jesus. And with our sins forgiven, 
God now calls us to be his children, to be his heirs of an eternal inheritance. Peter has mentioned that we can endure suffering because we have a certain hope. Well, the only reason that we have this hope is because Jesus suffered for us. So that's verse 18. Secondly, let's look at verse 19. Verse 19, Christ was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is that infamous tricky verse that Luther was talking about, so let's break it down. Now, at first glance, uh, you might read that Christ was resurrected as a spirit and went in his spirit form to the spirit prison to proclaim to the spirits in that prison. That's how you might kind of read those verses, um, the way they've sort of been translated. But the thing is, we know that Jesus was resurrected bodily. People touched him. They felt his scars. So more likely that we, we should understand that the word spirit here is referring not to the form that Jesus is made alive into, but is referring to the means by which Jesus is made alive. Uh, maybe a clearer translation is that Christ was made alive by the Spirit, by whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So that's the first thing. Uh, and next, we see that he went and proclaimed. Now, usually we associate the word proclaim with proclaiming the gospel. And so the expectation we have is that we proclaim with the goal that people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But more generally, the word is associated with proclaiming any form of good news. And so kings would arrive home from war and proclaim the victory that they won against their enemies for their nation. And so in this, uh, in this verse here, it's, it's not so likely that Jesus is seeking to evangelize uh, these spirits in prisons uh, in order to kind of get them to follow him. It's more likely that he has gone down to proclaim victory. He goes down to proclaim his victory over these spirits. But who are these spirits? Uh, in verse 20, uh, the, which, the, which is the verse that immediately follows, it explains to us that these are the spirits who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. Uh, and so you can read more about them in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today. Uh, but I think briefly, my view is that this verse uh, and talking about spirits actually is paralleled with what is said in verse 22. Uh, we see in verse 22 that Christ is ruling over angels, authorities, and powers. And that when Peter talks about the spirits in prison, it's another way of speaking about these powers. And so the point that is being made in this verse and in verse 22 is that Jesus is victoriously ruling over the spirits, the angels, the powers, the authorities. And so that's verse 19. And so Peter has already spoken uh, previously about how we are to have no, we, are, we, are, we do not have any need to have fear. We have no need to fear the harm of those who persecute Christians. Now, remember how Peter uh, began our passage, not with a call to submission, but with a call to good. You see, we don't need to submit to these powers because they have already been subjected to Jesus. 
Verse 19 helps us to see that because of Christ's victory, we can persevere in suffering, knowing that there is nothing to fear. Now, finally, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me first clarify here that Peter is not saying that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, As we've heard, we have several brothers and sisters being baptized this Easter Sunday. They have already entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus, which means that they are already saved. Their upcoming baptism doesn't change any of that. But I think what Peter is saying here is that, uh, you know, he, he refers back to Noah, and he says that Noah and his family trusted that God would bring them safely through the water. You see, Noah and his family were placed into uh, the destructive waters, but they emerged from the waters with life. And that is what happens at our baptism too. Now, not the baptism that you have at church, but our baptism into Christ. You see, being baptized into Christ is another way of saying that we have been united with him and with his saving work. Being united to Christ means that his death is our death. His suffering is our suffering. His resurrection is our resurrection. Our baptism, that is our union with Christ, saves us. We entrust ourselves to Jesus. We cling onto his death, his suffering, his resurrection, in order to bring us safely from death to life. And uh, our water baptism, the baptism that happens at church, is a sign, a symbol of that, right? We are plunged into the water as a sign that we have died with Christ. And thankfully, we don't stay there. We are brought back up again from the water as a sign that we have been resurrected with Christ. And when we recall our baptism, we are reminded that we are united with him in his suffering. And this is why we are to persevere. But we are also reminded that we have been united with him in his resurrection, which means our suffering will not be in vain, but we will rise again from the waters and share in Christ's victory. And so, as Peter urges us to pursue the good life amidst suffering, he reminds us from the gospel that we don't need to persevere and do this ourselves. In fact, we cannot do this ourselves. We are only able to do this because Christ suffered for us. He died in our place for our sins so that we could be brought to God to receive an inheritance. He rose victoriously from his death, demonstrating that all powers and authorities are subject to him, including those who persecute us, so that we no longer need to fear. And he empowers us to persevere by reminding us through our baptism that we are saved by sharing in Jesus' victorious suffering.
Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a time not unlike Peter's day. Now, Australia moves further and further away from its Christian heritage. The opposition against Christians and the Christian faith will only increase. And you may already experience it now. You know, you're ostracized in school because people perceive your Christian faith as hatred towards those from the LGBTIQ community. You're attacked for your opposition against uh, developing abortion laws or against your views on marriage. You're ridiculed for not having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, for embracing the complementarity of roles between men and women, for committing to a lifetime of singleness, for deciding to pause or leave your career to care for your children or to pursue vocational ministry. You may already experience the opposition, the growing opposition, even now. And in those moments, God's word reminds us to pursue the good life, to persevere in suffering, and to do so knowing he has equipped and empowered us through the gospel of Christ's victorious suffering. Because of that, we can be bold in our witness. So, brothers and sisters, be bold in your witness. Don't avoid the opportunity to witness and defend your hope. You have no reason to fear. And at the same time, be good in your witness. Don't retaliate, but bless. Pray for the salvation of those who oppose you, those who ridicule you, those who discriminate against you, those who harm you. And seek to live in such a way that those who slander you would be won over for Jesus or otherwise be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, it's difficult to do this alone. But we do not suffer alone. Your brothers and sisters sitting around you, on your left, on your right, behind, in front of you, they are suffering too. And so let's embrace harmony. Let's embrace sympathy, love, compassion, humility. Let's encourage and spur each other on to persevere. Let's pray for one another. Let's share in our sufferings together. Let's ensure that when someone strays from the good life or is on the verge of calling it quits, Maybe that person is you. Let's ensure that we bring them back to the gospel, to the gospel of the one who suffered and emerged victorious. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, uh, it is difficult for us uh, as we face suffering because we are weak and frail. Father, please strengthen us in our faith. Strengthen us in our hope. Enable us to persevere. And remind us that you have already done this in the gospel of Jesus. Father, we pray that as we uh, face the increasing opposition against the Christian faith, against the Lord Jesus in this world, we pray that you would help us to persevere, to pray for those who persecute us, 
to bless them, that we might see many people in your kingdom and that we might celebrate the glorious victory that you have already won for us in Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.